Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankin, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david dot com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program these stories are about the id unleashed they're about the wildness contained in all of us i think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Valeria Luiselli, is a Mexican writer who grew up in South Africa, South Korea, and India, and now lives in Harlem. She's the author of the novel Faces in the Crowd and its kindred essay collection, Sidewalks. She's written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, Granta, and McSweeney's, and was the recipient of the Los Angeles Times Art Sedenbaum Award for First Fiction and the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 Award. Her work has been compared to the likes of Sheila Hetty and Ben Lerner, Raymond Cano and Raymond Roussel, and Roberto Bolaño and Enrique Villamatas. She's here today to talk about her third book, The Story of My Teeth, which has been described alternately as a collective novel essay, like reading Walter Benjamin without the tears, and as a living, breathing map. Welcome to Between the Covers, Valeria Luiselli. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, David. So before we talk about the remarkable origin story of this book, let's introduce the readers to the storyteller, the protagonist of the book, Gustavo Highway Sanchez Sanchez. Uh, tell us who he is and, and what he's up to. Well, Gustavo Sanchez Sanchez Highway is um, originally a guard in a factory that produces juice. And... He one day reads a little article, news bit really, in the newspaper where he learns that there's a writer who has written a novel and with the money that he got from this novel, he was able to fix his teeth. And Gustavo Sanchez-Sanchez has really, really bad teeth. So is... um, immediately thrilled by the idea of being able to to do something that would buy him new dentures. So he begins a career not as a writer, but something that's in a way similar, and I play with that ambiguity in, in, in the novel, um, he becomes an auctioneer. And he, he, he auctions all sorts of, all sorts of objects from, from old cars to real estate to his own teeth at some point. 
and, and purportedly the teeth of many other people as well. It seems to me like he he stumbles upon this idea of uh, that storytelling is the very thing that's adding value to the things that he's auctioning off. Is is that the right way to? to that's put it? exactly that's exactly at the heart of the novel. That that's exactly the idea at the heart of the novel. I started working with that idea, kind of intuitively at the beginning, but one of the readers and I'll. Well, I guess we'll speak about that uh, later on. One of the readers, the, the readers of this novel were, were workers in a juice factory, the, the original readers. And one of the workers in the juice factory immediately caught on to that. And he immediately understood that I was exploring the idea of storytelling being a way of adding value to to things, symbolic value. And he articulated it very much in the same words you've just articulated them. And, and that, that opened a, a window for me, and I, I understood exactly what, what I had to do. Did you feel like this was an explicit reference to Duchamp and the ready-mades, the idea of taking something that isn't art or not considered art and putting it in a different context so that it, um, to sort of interrogate its value in a different context? It, it is exactly that, although... In, in in a way, it's also the reverse Duchamp procedure because um, Duchamp brought in an external object into a gallery, and and there questioned the the, the value uh, of an everyday object uh, and how gallery space endows everyday objects or any object, found objects, with with a kind of uh, added value. And what I do in the novel is, is kind of the, the opposite. Um, I, I take things out of their, the space that usually frames them and endows them with value uh, and, and try to figure out what happens to them. So it's different when you're working in narrative than when you're working with physical art objects, right? And the way that I thought that I could emulate a process like that one, but in writing, was by bringing out names of writers from the literary pantheon, so to speak. So it's a, it's a novel where many, many names appear, names of famous writers from Marcel Proust to... Jean-Paul Sartre um, to Borges and many others, but they they are kind of not referred to as as writers. They're just names, names that are being dropped constantly. I mean, in, in fact, it's a novel that plays with and is about name dropping in many ways. Mm. Well, speaking of a name that came to mind when I was reading it, I felt a resonance between Gustavo Highway, Sanchez Sanchez, and Don Quixote in the sense that they're both very explicitly in the narrative engaged with storytelling and the adventures that ensue are based on their engagement with storytelling. Does that, does that ring true to you in, in terms of, do you feel like there's any sort of conversation with the story of my teeth and, and Don Quixote? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in, in many moments I was thinking of, of Don Quixote. I wish I, I, I would have had more time to, to work on th this book with the people that originally uh, um, helped me through this book, which were, as I said before, a group of, of factory workers, because I, I could have then, it would have become a kind of serialized, much longer book than it is. Um, although I guess maybe people today don't don't read books as long as Don Quixote. I mean, there are a few. But um, I, I would have liked to, to make it longer and sort of take... Gustavo Sanchez Sanchez, through more adventures. But I, I was certainly thinking of Don Quixote. Uh, not only that, I mean, toward the end, it is very much a novel about storytelling and about how stories interact with our lives and how they interact with the objects of our day, everyday life and give them value and wrap them in, in value, so to speak. But not only that, the, the character Gustavo Sanchez, Sanchez also, just as Don Quixote is, 
is writing his biography or his own story, right? His autobiography. But he's doing so through telling it to someone else. And this other, this other person is called in the novel uh, Jacobo de Voragine. It's a, a person who existed, um, who, who wrote a um, kind of biography of saints. Mm. Um, but he is very much like the, the character Side Hamete Benengeli in Don Quixote, who is the translator, transcriber figure who is supposedly uh, writing the Quixote within within the Quixote, so to speak. So it 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 shares that too, the, this idea of of the story that's being told and transferred and translated, and and it's not clear who is writing it and when it's being written. Hmm. That's interesting. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to writer Valeria Luiselli about her latest book, The Story of My Teeth. Since our listeners are probably wondering uh, what you're talking about with regards to these uh, factory workers in a, in a juice factory, walk us through a little bit how this project came to be, what you were originally presented with, and then how it became the project that is now The Story of My Teeth. Well, I started writing this as a commission. It was a commission from an art collection called the Humex Foundation, or Humex Collection Foundation. And they contacted me one day saying that they were putting together an exhibition and that they wanted me to produce a fictional piece for their catalog of this exhibition and wanted me to engage somehow in the process of their putting this together. So they wanted me to write in installments, possibly in a blog. And um, I'm, I'm not very fond of blogs and, and I'm not very fond of the idea of having to, to, to sort of spill words into a, an electronic format and then, and then that being out there. And um, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not very fond. So I said, no, I wouldn't do that. And I suggested the following. So this art collection is funded by a big factory called the Humex factory also. And it's a factory that produces juice, basically. Um, and I thought it would be much more interesting to write, indeed, in installments, but for the factory and not for the gallery. So I suggested that I would write in installments, but for the factory workers. And it took us a while to figure out how that might work and how the, just the, the logistics of it would be. And at the end, what, what we decided and what happened was that I wrote one installment, sent it over to the Humex, that was printed in, in a chapbook form, I believe, although I suspect that maybe it wasn't really a chapbook, as I imagined, but just, just a bunch of uh, pages <laughs> from a Word document. But well, they told me it was a, a chapbook. That, that chapbook or, or Word document was distributed among factory workers. And after that first distribution, a few of them expressed their interest in reading and forming a kind of reading group that would meet weekly. And about 12 workers came together and they started meeting once a week to receive these installments, read them out loud to each other, and then comment them and criticize them and suggest things and, in a way, workshop them. That's what we did for months. And you, um, you would get the audio files of the, these workshops Exactly. Back in New York. Exactly. The whole, their sessions were recorded and they were sent to me that same night. So I would be eagerly waiting for them, for the recording, for the workers' voices. And I would hear them that night. And that same night, I would start writing uh, with a heavy dose of caffeine because uh, I only had one week between each installment. And um, that's what we did over uh, over the course of uh, some months. I think it was shorter. It was probably a month and a half, but with with other things in between. Um, and did you find yourself writing towards certain members of this workshop? Like you would imagine, like this person really 
is either giving me really great insight into what I'm doing or is the right audience for this book. And, and you imagined this voice of this person you never met as you wrote the next section. That's a really good question. And yeah, and it's, it's insightful of you to ask it because that indeed happened. And it happened to such a, such a degree that I started hearing the voice of one of the workers in my head while I was writing. And that kind of became, well, that, not, not kind of, that became the, the voice of, of my narrator. Uh, initially, the voice I had in my head was uh, a, a voice of an uncle of mine who, who's a tradesman and a salesman in a huge market in Mexico City and knows how to tell wonderful stories about his objects, objects that he sells and trades. And he, he can tell you wonders uh, about, a, about a piece of ham or a car part or uh, whatever it is that he's selling in that whatever stage of his life. He's, he's, he's gone from selling books by the meter, as he says, <laughs> like <laughs> by the meter, to selling, uh, to selling car parts and anything. So he has uh, amazing stories. And it was his voice that I initially heard in my head. But as soon as I started hearing the real voices and one particular voice struck me, uh, I, started hearing, I started hearing those in my head while writing. So um, the, influence, the influence that the workers had on, on this book was, I don't think it can even be called influence. I, it, it was really something written in collaboration. Well, let me ask you this: you, you, in the project of doing the story of my teeth, you're you're bridging this this space between the gallery and the factory that's funding it. Is there any independent of the book? Is there a back and forth and an, an interplay between the factory and the gallery? Do the workers go to see the art in the gallery, and is the gallery engaged in some way back with the factory, or is this book partly a product of that complete absence of interaction between the two? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. I don't know how often the workers would go to the gallery before this particular exhibition. I know that the curators of this exhibition, uh, Magali Ariola and Juan Gaitan, two very, very smart curators, wanted to somehow bridge the gap and were doing all sorts of things in that exhibition to, to focus on the gap and do something to bridge it. This might have been this exhibition in particular might have been one of the first times that there, there was more interaction. Although I know that the gallery and foundation uh, have all sorts of sort of projects and um, workshops and other things that often integrate the workers. But um, what was interesting to me when I was writing this was that there was a point in which the the workers went to the exhibition and they came back and it was a few days maybe before the installment meeting, the reading session. And during the session, after the reading, they started talking about their visit to, to the exhibition, uh, which I hadn't been to, by the way. I, I knew what pieces were being exhibited because I, um, I had pictures of all of them. I had descriptions, size, uh, how many kilograms they weighed, everything. I, ha I even had a video, a kind of audio-visual uh, tour of the exhibition space. But that was it. But they went, and they started talking about the exhibition during a session. And during that particular uh, encounter, I was picking up a lot of what they were saying and reused a lot of what they said mm. as uh, part of the, the of the story. For example, um, there was um, an installation by Ugo Rondinone, uh, an artist based in New York, uh, using huge projections of horrifying clowns. And uh, these horrifying clowns covered an entire room and so the workers, some of them went into the installation and sat there for a while and were completely horrified and, and had a very funny reaction in, after the fact. 
and had a really long discussion during the session that was recorded about clowns, about their relation to street clowns, about what they what they think of a clown as a possible art object, and that their discussion became uh, basically an entire installment uh, about an an an, an installation mm. where there is a, a, a horrible. And one of the inspirations for this book is also the 19th century phenomenon of tobacco readers, which I had never heard of before. Can can you tell our listeners what tobacco readers are? That's exactly where the idea of of this book came from, at least the idea of how to to proceed in making this book. So in the 19th century in Cuba began the tradition of tobacco readers, which was basically a tradition in which a reader would sit in front of a large hall where there, would, where there were people rolling cigars, a very repetitive and tedious task and hard on the hands. Uh, and someone would sit at the front of this room and read out loud to people working. And that would purported, purportedly make the experience of everyday repetitive labor a little bit less tedious and Mm. crushing. This tradition of tobacco readers spread to other Latin American countries. It spread to Mexico. In the Yucatan Peninsula, it became a common practice too. I heard the other day from someone that it it even came to, to, to the United States at some point. Mm. But I, I don't know anything about that and, and how, how it came to the U.S. and if it, if it, really, um, if it really took root in any factory spaces. I know it, the, the tradition disappeared from, from Mexico or is basically non-existent now, but it continues in Cuba till today. Just that the books that they now read have changed. So it used to be like Tolstoy and Balzac and Dostoevsky, a lot of the Russians, of course. Yeah. Um, but now I think I read an article that said that one of the books that was being read in one particular factory was Fifty Shades of Grey, oh, no. <laughs> which I found really That's so sad. sad. <laughs> yeah. That is sad. <laughs> In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to writer Valeria Luiselli about her latest book, The Story of My Teeth. Why don't we have our listeners hear some of the prose? Do you have a, do you have a section you could, you could read? Of course. I can read a little bit from the beginning of the, of the book just to give you an idea of how, how it sounds and sounds who this great. man is. And yeah. I'm the best auctioneer in the world but no one knows it because I'm a discreet sort of man. My name is Gustavo Sanchez Sanchez, though people call me Highway, I believe, with affection. I can imitate Janice Joplin after two rums. I can interpret Chinese fortune cookies. I can stand an egg upright on a table, the way Christopher Columbus did in the famous anecdote. I know how to count eight in Japanese. Ichi ni sanshi go rokushichi hachi. I can float on my back. This is the story of my teeth and my treatise on collectibles and the variable value of objects. As any other story, this one begins with a beginning and then comes the middle and then the end. The rest, as a friend of mine always says, is literature, hyperbolics, parabolics, circulars, allegorics, and elliptics. I don't know what comes after that. Possibly ignominy, death, and finally, post-mortem fame. At that point, it will no longer be my place to say anything in the first person. I will be a dead man, a happy, enviable man. It's so wonderful. I, I, I wanted to speak to the tone of, of, of this book compared to your other ones. It is a departure in terms of tone. This is much more, uh, has more of an absurdist tone. And I, I was curious if there were touchstones for you and, and, places that you went or it was just a natural voice for you to to adopt did you did you look at certain writers as you were writing the story of my teeth for that in specific because you don't hint at that in the faces of of the crowd and and in sidewalks 
Yeah, you are very right in pointing that out. This is a very, this is a book that has a very different tone, primarily because it was a book originally written to be read out loud. So I was, I was hearing more than gazing. I think my other books are, are not the narrator's voices are not really voices, but perhaps the sound of someone thinking, which is really no sound at all. Um, they're very silent books, very quiet books. Uh, this, is, this is a book that is all about orality, if, that, if the word exists. Does it exist? Orality. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> I don't uh, know. It sounds, sounds right. Rather ugly. Um, it, it, it is very oral, and I could hear a voice as opposed to writing with the voice that that I hear in my head when I think, which is, I guess, my own voice. Uh, here, I, I could hear a very different voice. It was somebody else's. It was it was Gustavo Sanchez, and um, as I said earlier, his voice was an amalgam of uh, my uncle's voice and the voice of one of the of the factory workers who was a worker that was particularly picaresque and and funny and full of full of wisdom and humor and innocence but also some kind of savviness well, as a reader, I, it felt like I was witnessing you having a lot of fun writing from the male point of view. And I'm curious if that's actually true. Uh, it, it felt like there was a tangible authorial joy in describing Gustavo's morning erections and uh, the horrible way he describes women from his perspective. Um, I, somehow I felt very conscious that a woman was writing <laughs> him at the same time as I felt like a joy that she was inhabiting a, a male character. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm curious if how that was for you. Yeah, I mean, I think like transvestism is always fun, right? I, it's and it's a it's a it's a wonderful freedom to have when you're writing that you can go from sex to sex and inhabit different bodies and different voices and different minds. That's that's what writing. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it worthwhile. That that freedom precisely to be so many people at the same time. And I was definitely having a lot of fun with Gustavo Sanchez in particular. I, he, I, I felt that he was uh, a character that, that kind of pulled, um, it's kind of cliche, but often writers say that, that really they, they just see a character living and moving about and doing things and and simply just write whatever is kind of happening and you're always kind of be behind the character a little bit uh instead of instead of creating it uh, i felt like that with gustavo sanchez i it, it was it was a character a character that was very much alive since since the very beginning hmm. of the novel well let me ask a very different question uh, all of your books they Oh. Wait, I just remembered something. Can okay. I say it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, because you, you said something really interesting, which was that you, you felt that it was very clear that it was a woman writing from a male perspective. And I, I decided when, before I started, before I sent the first installment to the factory, I decided that I was going to write in a male voice because I, as probably many people would, assumed that because I was writing for a factory, I was going to be writing for men. So I said, well, I'm not going to write in a female voice and I'm not going to write under my own name because I think I'm, I'm, that, might, that might create a larger gap and I might have less credibility if, if, if a group of men who have been working all day uh, are faced with reading a young woman's uh, prose. And I decided to write in the voice of a man. 
But then after the first session, um, when I got to hear the recording of the first session, I realized that 80% of the people there were women. So I, I had oh, just no wrongly, yeah, <laughs> I had just wrongly assumed that, that of course it, it was a factory, so there would be men working there. It, it was, it's not the case as women as much as men. So, but I had already chosen to to write from the point of view of a man. So I, I, I had to stick with that. I didn't have time to to swerve too much. Well, well let me be clear. I, I, when I said that I felt like it was a woman writing a character of a man, I didn't mean to imply that I felt like you didn't create a credible, believable male oh, character. No, I, I didn't understand that at okay. all either. No, no, no. It's just that I, I wasn't came, being paranoid. No, no, yeah, no. I came to the book having read your other two books, which are very uh, deeply seated in, in a in woman's femininity, perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, except for the character of Gilberto Owen, no, but even Owen's voice in Faces in the Crowd is... Is is the voice of a man that is really the voice of a woman that's kind of unfolded mm. into the voice of a man. Mm. Mm. So, so back to my question. All of your books make the procedures of their creation visible mm. in the works themselves, but it feels like this book more than any. And, and you you even tip your hand around that in the piece that you read uh, at the beginning. We, as in any other story, this book has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then the rest is literature, and then you name the different modes of narrative uh, storytelling. And then you actually structure the book that way. There's a chapter called The Story, Beginning, Middle, End, and then you have these different modes that Highway engages in when he auctions off items in order to see how he can create value and translate these these objects into a higher value. Tell us about this approach to writing, this foregrounding of something that's usually made invisible in writing, um, the procedure of its creation. It's a very complex question and a very good one. Um, it, it is true. My books, I, I always want my books to somehow retain the imprints of the process of their making. I like them to somehow record that um, I, it, it's not a prescriptive kind of idea. It's just perhaps that I, I, I like to see them as, as direct results of an experience and, and, and as an object that, that had to go through the world and, and, and come out and, and, and therefore retain that passage through, through the world and through experience. So the first part of your question, my answer would be yes. That's very well uh, perceived. Now, in terms of the structure of this book, I was thinking on several different levels. So one of the, one of the things that I thought about constantly while I was reading for this book and thinking about contemporary art and procedures of contemporary art and talking to curators and artists about their work and how they how how they work and how they proceed one of the things that i that kept coming to me was how much eccentricity as a characteristic of a person or of a of a personality how much eccentricity plays a part in endowing the artist with a kind of aura and therefore his work uh, and how, how it endows his work with 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 value i had I had the feeling that that there was a kind of strife toward eccentricity among artists. The more eccentric um, the story that wraps their object and the more eccentric their persona the more likely it seemed that that they they would be successful as artists um of course it's not necessarily true it's not an equation i'm trying to to somehow lay out but 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 i had i had an intuition toward eccentricity so i started then reading about eccentricity and reading about clubs in the UK in the 18th century, uh, which would, were called eccentrics clubs, and huh. people would, would just uh, reunite on the basis of their eccentricity. 
Um, and among the many things I read, uh, there was an article, a mathematical article, from that that defined eccentricity in mathematical terms. And the the definition of the mathematical definition of eccentricity, uh, not that I understand it, but it is. And I'm going to read it. All right. <laughs> <Because Great>. <laughs> okay. Eccentricity is the degree of deviation of a conic section from a given circumference. So, for example, um, the eccentricity of a circ of a conic section like the circle is different <clears throat> to that of the con of the conic of a different conic section like like an ellipsis or a parable uh, or a hyperbola. So, as I said, not that I understand this at all. Although I have a friend who who drew some who drew some um, diagrams to to explain explain this this concept to me, but. What I was really fascinated by, among other things, was the the, relate, the strange relationship with the fact that all these uh, geometric figures that were used in the definition of, of eccentricity are also um, literary devices and or figures of speech. So the hyperbole is is of course related to a hyperbola in literature, or the parable to the parabola. Uh, and so on and so forth. So I thought, well, let me take this this kind of mathematical definition of eccentricity as a structure or backbone for the book and play with it and then think of think of it in terms of literary figures, uh, devices or, or figures of speech instead of just mathematical forms. So each of the books in The Story of My Teeth is based on one of these forms, the, the hyperbole, the parabola, um, the circle, or, or the ellipsis. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer Valeria Luiselli about her book, The Story of My Teeth. Well, one thing that you do that's, I guess, could be considered eccentric in, in The Story of My Teeth is one of the ways in which your book is about its own creation is uh, your inclusion of your translator as co-writer and not simply the way in which all translators are co-writers of, of a person's book, but you invited her to actually write a, a section of the story of my teeth. So tell us a little bit about what Christina McSweeney's section is doing in relationship to the, the part that you wrote. Well, my relationship with Christina goes back now uh, about seven years so we, we know each other a lot we know each other well we've um, we've gone back and forth she she now knows my voice in Spanish and in English perfectly well so that that deep knowledge um, of how the other works and how the other thinks has given us a lot of freedom also right I guess it's like two musicians playing together. Uh, if you know the other well, you can improvise a lot and you, you kind of predict where the other is going. And um, So Christina has very strange and wonderful methods in her translation process. She, From the, the very first time she translated something of mine, she asked me to send her uh, songs that I was listening to while writing what I was writing and perhaps like... As, uh, the kind of images that I was looking at, if I was looking at them, she asked me to describe the rooms that I wrote in, mm. and I guess she 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 was she was trying to recreate in a very deep sense the experience of of of, of my writing, and uh, other than, than that, she ha she does these insane maps <laughs> of things that are mentioned, events and people, but with the story of my teeth, because it's a book in which. There are so many names mentioned. She was going crazy with this map. She she couldn't figure it out. She was she she kept and it kept on changing because I kept on changing versions. But she did an incredible. She did something incredible, which was to to figure out every single name that was mentioned in the book and place it in relation to history, to real recorded history, so to speak, and that in relation to the 
the chronological timeline of the book. And she, she did this all for herself to just have a big map, a big, big picture of what was going on. And when she showed me some pages of this, I, I thought it was the most brilliant thing. And we discussed the possibility of integrating it into the book. She, she was happy with the idea. And then we showed it to Chris Fishback, our, the editor at Coffee House Press, my publisher. And he also really liked it. And when Christina finished... And it was, and we we all realized it was such a wonderful thing that she'd done. We decided to integrate it as a as another book inside the story, as another chapter, basically. Mm. But and something else happened really that was wonderful. Yeah, which is that um, the the intern and a very very smart intern, very ambitious, hardworking, creative, that was working at Coffee House Press uh, while we were editing the book started fact-checking it, and she fact-checked it so thoroughly, but with a sense of humor as well, uh, that we ended up making a little chapbook called The Fact-Check. And I'm thinking now that we're going to also integrate The Fact-Check as, as, as another chapter in another edition oh, of the book. Because she, I mean, she fact-checks things that are... are it, it, are really interesting uh, to be fact-checked at all. And, but but at, at the same time, she's very inventive in the way that she, she asks the fact-check questions. So it's, 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 it's a proper chapbook with 100 pages or so of questions about the book. Well, if we look at this idea of translation and, and this book sort of in its, uh, among its kindred books, when I think of other writers who foreground the procedure of, of making the book as part of the book, they also seem to be interested in translation as a theme. I think of Calvino, who has translators as characters, or Harry Matthews in the Alipo mm-hmm. movement, particularly uh, uh, Country Cooking in Central France. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read that story, or he has other stories that have to do with tribes who only have one word languages and how they translate and speak to each other. But do you think there's something about doing this procedural sort of work when you're writing that um, exposes the way any expression is translation, that anything that you think or feel put into the world is being translated and something's being lost and something's being gained? I think a lot about translation as a problem and... I mean, as, as, as a puzzle, as, as something to be, to be played with, dealt with, thought about, um, beyond, of course, the, the, the mere act of bringing a sentence from one language into another language. I mean, I think of translation as a form of carrying things over. That, that's what it means, in fact, to, tra- to translate from... from it, translate comes from, from the Latin translatio, which means to both move something, carry it over, uh, transfer it, uh, take it on a, vo- on a trip from A to B, basically. And I think of translation in those terms, and I, I think of many th- practices as forms of translation, of course. I think, um, for example, of, uh, of things ha- that happened, for, for example, the, what went on between the workers and I, was certainly a form of translation. They were, trans- they were transferring uh, a series of images to me by f- speaking about them, creating them in dialogue, images that I would transfer, uh, that, would, that, that came in through an audio file, and that I would transfer into words again, uh, in my own words, not theirs, and then that would travel back to them, and in traveling back to them would be heard and then transformed into opinion commentary so it's it's it was a back and forth that implied many many layers of translation uh, there were also images being sent to me images of the art pieces images images of of the the the, the neighborhood where the factory is located that i would sometimes uh explore. Other times I, I decided to integrate some of those pictures into the book itself um, because I thought that they, 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 they ground the book in, in, in a real space that, that I, wanted to, I wanted to make visible. 
Um, so there was there was that form of carrying over things too through just visual visual data. Um, so yes, there are many layers of translation going on here. Uh, well, even more because it's really fascinating. I've never seen this before, but you grew up speaking English. You you grew up mostly outside of Mexico, and and um, and I've read that with all of these books, you've written parts of them in English as you were writing and then translated them back into Spanish or rewrote them in Spanish um, before they are then translated by Christina into English, um, even if parts of them were originally written in English. What is going on? Like, Tell us about um, why you wanted a translator at all, for instance. <laughs> it's a good question. Um... And I would probably need a divan for it, but uh, I do I do write directly in English, and a lot of the things that I write directly in English, I publish directly in English. I don't really write them in Spanish, uh, but I've never written an entire book just in English, and then ha- have it translated to Spanish. And I think I mean the reason may 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 be just more circumstantial at at this point. That is, the first book I wrote, Sidewalks. I wrote that book with a very clear intention to make Spanish my mother tongue. It hadn't been ever. Although it was spoken in my house, it wasn't a language that I had grown up reading or writing or even speaking most of the time. So I decided to write that book to make to, to inhabit my my mother tongue to make it really my, my mother tongue, uh, but also at the same time to to inhabit Mexico City in a deeper way because I had never really lived in my own city. So it had to be written in Spanish, even though some of the essays that I wrote, I actually wrote in English. I then rewrote them in Spanish. Mm. So it was very much a book that was at the same time a project of belonging. Then with Faces in the Crowd... I originally started writing in English and I wrote maybe the first 50 or so pages in English and I probably would have continued in English. But uh, I, I, was, I was living in, in New York at the moment. But I moved back to Mexico and um, my reality shifted to another language. And I started, as I often do, recording uh, in paper and pen the everyday language around me the language that was being spoken by the, my family around me, fundamentally. And um, that's one of the things that uh, we were speaking earlier about, m- how I like my books to bear the imprint of their making. Well, I, I record things that I hear all the time and, and, and leave them as is many times, as, as very direct uh, indexes or, or fingerprints. And that happened in Spanish. So I, I, I changed languages and I wrote it in Spanish. Now, with the story of my teeth, I was writing for a Mexican factory, so it had to be in Spanish. Um, but it doesn't mean that, uh, that I will not write later on in English. I think what I'm writing now, I feel, has to be written in English, the novel I'm writing mm. right now. Uh, so that's, that's in English. Um, so we'll see. I, yeah. It's so hard to write. It's so hard to write anything. The language issue is, is you just have to write in a language in which you can say what you need to say as best and as clearly as possible. As best. <laughs> oh, God. As, <laughs> as clearly as possible. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to writer Valeria Luiselli about her latest book, The Story of My Teeth. I would imagine you would have as an uh, interesting insider-outsider vantage point around translation in a global sense. And, the, and, and what I mean by that is I know you've expressed uh, irritation that uh, Latin American writers or Spanish-speaking writers are most often reflexively compared to magical realism or, it, it, or to Bolaño. And I, but, I, but I have a feeling that that's mainly because we don't seem to have an interest in translation as a culture in America. Maybe it's a product of empire, but I think of great Spanish-speaking writers like Sergio Pitol, who are only now getting their first books put into English. Do you have any thoughts on that, on living in New York and being in a 
in a culture where maybe just recently it seems to be there a resurgence and an interest in translation with a lot of presses. Um, but historically it seems like it's, it's a diminishing, it, it was, it has been a diminishing interest in the United States. I think you're right to point out that, that there has been a resurgence in translation. Uh, when I arrived in the United States about eight years ago, um, when I had, I was starting my PhD at Columbia it was very clear to me that that the translation was was kind of non-existent. Uh, there seemed to be the translations made of the boom generation, so of Garcia Marquez, Cortázar, um, Vargas Llosa, Rulfo, and then a huge gap, only filled here and there by what I consider a sort of derivative magical realism. My very humble opinion. Uh, the books books by uh, Laura Esquivel or Isabel Allende, which I thought were n- not 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 great works of literature, uh, but only only those books were being translated here. A few others, maybe. Um, and then there was the Bolaño explosion, and I, I I was in New York exactly during the explosion, and I and I wondered. I even wrote an article for a for a for a magazine in Mexico saying it was a very naive and full of, um, full of, of enthusiasm and hope, uh, saying, well, maybe this is the beginning of a new resurgence uh, of Latin American literature. And, and in a way, it was not so naive. It has happened. I mean, not, I, don't, I don't know if it was just because of Bolaño. Uh, I think Bolaño did open up a door again and, and did pike the curiosity of, of many, many readers. But I think it, it's more than that. I think that it has to do with the 2008 crisis and how a lot of spaces disappeared and a, a lot of new ones were created. I think it has a lot to do um, with something that's not quite visible in the U.S., but its effects are visible, which is that in 2008 uh, and after 2008, the Spanish editorial world, when I say Spanish, I mean from Spain, um, did not collapse, but it did suffer greatly. And as a result of a a diminishment in power of the editorial space in Spain, many new independent houses all around Latin America started appearing, or the ones that already existed existed became much more prominent. So before that, I think before 2008, as a young Latin American writer, for example, if your book wasn't published in Spain, it was almost as if it hadn't been published. It, it, it had to be published there um, in order to kind of exist in the literary sphere. And after the crisis, that, that disappeared. I mean, if... I, 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 my publisher is in Mexico. They, they, they happen to have an office in Spain too, but, but it's much more attractive for someone in my generation now to publish their book in a local, um, in a local publisher in Peru and a local publisher in Argentina, in Colombia, in Uruguay, in wherever. And then to be in a huge transnational, uh, publisher in Spain, right? And I think that that has brought into visibility a lot of really interesting work by a lot of really interesting writers. There's a whole new generation that's springing and flourishing throughout Latin America. And we're seeing the effects of that here, I think, because a lot of young translators in the US and young publishers are picking up on that with their very peculiar sensibility and are translating those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the collapse in the U.S. of the big six publishing houses and the rise of the mid-list and small presses, they're willing to take more risks in translating people that that uh, that the audience in the United States hasn't heard of exactly. before. And it's the confluence of all of that that's bringing all of this about. I hope that it's not a boom or just a... Uh, a that, but that it's really a lasting uh, phenomenon, a, a lasting conversation that that we've been waiting to have for so so many years, right? I mean, I think of the generation of poets um, in Mexico that started translating into English, sorry, f- from English into Spanish. They started translating Joyce and T.S. Eliot 
and Langston Hughes and William Carlos Williams for the first time in the 1920s. They created journals of translation where they were that were thought of as spaces in which to publish their generation from other tongues into Spanish. They were interested in translation and in translation as a way of, of allowing another language and another um, uh, tradition to influence uh, their work, the work within th their, their nation, right? Uh, but that, that, that was never a two-way street. The, their contemporaries of those Mexican poets, T.S. Eliot, Pound, etc., never really translated their Latin American counterparts. So it's, it's a conversation that we, yeah. we've, we've been... I wonder if it's the solipsism of being the dominant seat of power and being the dominant language in the world. Uh, if, it is. I if, think it is. If it just becomes an echo chamber. And, and, and that that um, reminds me of an essay that I thought was really interesting that you wrote about personal essay, where you say that the emphasis is too much on the personal and not enough on the essay. And, and you're talking about the difference between a writer's voice and a writer's gaze and that you lean towards the writer's gaze. It seems to me like in the United States, voice has got the primacy of, of value mm -hmm. in writing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that polarity? What, what, what the difference is between leaning towards voice and leaning towards gaze? Gaze is a category that is, is kind of more... It's almost mis metaphysical. It's it's more esoteric. It's it's more difficult to grasp as a as a concept when you think um, of a text, right? Where where is the gaze exactly? It's something that's sort of there all over, but not. Voice is is something more easy to talk about because um, it can be tied down to rhythm in a sentence, and and rhythm can be explained through syntax and through. Uh, uh, devices like alliterations, and so it's easier to speak of a text in terms of its of its voice, right? And perhaps because um, we have such a large uh, schooling system here that shows writing as a career, the MFA system, um, perhaps voice is is really like the category, one of the fundamental categories that is. Is used, and I, I think it, I mean I think a lot of those things happen just because. As I mean, I'm a teacher. I know I know how this is. It's just when it's easier to talk about something, uh, you you end up you end up uh, gravitating towards the, the, that those categories, right? So categories like empathy, categories like voice, categories like uh, um, I don't know structure, and then thinking of structure as 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 a beginning, middle, end, or uh, I don't know, just these very sim simple and simplistic ways of explaining a book end up uh, often dominating uh, the practice of writing, which I think should not be dominated at all by, well, by these ideas. Well, I, mean, I, I don't think about any of those things when I'm writing at all. Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is an example of gaze, but one of the things that I really appreciate about your work and that I think you share in common with Vila Matas and Bolaño and, and not just Spanish-speaking writers, but more commonly outside of the English-speaking world, I think, which maybe this is an example of gaze, but it's that you're in a conversation with other books. You're in conversation with literature um, within the book. Maybe this is a way in which the procedure and the creation of the book is foregrounded too, but uh, it's as if you are engaging your place within the family tree. It's mm -hmm. like a family conversation hmm. among writers That's and the true. history of writers. Well, yeah, there's, there's of course, like a, a deep consciousness of, of tradition in me and of, of how I, I, I am in dialogue with that tradition. But gaze also goes... goes goes elsewhere, that the notion or the way that I conceive the, the notion of gaze as opposed to, 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 to voice. And that is that it, it's almost a question of attitude of a writer, really, right? So, so I like to inhabit another person's mind when I'm reading them, kind of sit, sit in their mind and look at the world the way that they look at it, because that's that's why I read, because I, I, I read in order to, to be able to, to leave my own mind and, and, and understand things through the mind of others. Um, and there, there needs to be a kind of quietness in the writer 
for me to be able to engage with the writing like that and to sort of jump into the book and jump into their minds and, and look at their, the world that they're creating. When I think of voice, I think of something much more um, kind of aggressive, you know, of someone like... in. in Standing in front of you with a micro, with a with a microphone, and 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 just blabbing on about <laughs> things that they they think and do, and and it's very clear when you open a book and when that that is the attitude, uh, versus when a book is is kind of more quietly and patiently inviting you in. When you talk about silence, it, it reminds me a little bit of that of the Portuguese word that you say is untranslatable. Saudade. Saudade. Uh, the presence of an absence was your attempt at a translation for it, which feels like that could be a motif for something you're reaching for, and perhaps in in all of your books. Would you say that that's true? Is that something that you that you look for? I I, I think of the idea of the relingos in mm. in cities, and then you just wrote this piece for the Guardian about the rooftops in in mm. Mexico City, um, the places where silence might be able to exist in a in a otherwise not silent place? I couldn't have said that better than you just <laughs> said. <laughs> um, but I think that, just to add a little bit to that, I, I, as much as I would like to be much tougher <laughs> and uh, meaner, <laughs> I guess that the, I, I, I do, I am a person that, that, that relates to life through a lot of... Uh, nostalgia often and nostalgia for things gone i mean not not not, a, not hopefully not in a pathetic way no but but i've i've moved around so much and i feel i feel like i've lived so many lives and i have left so many things behind and and i'm i'm there's a lot of of, of empty empty spaces there that i'm not trying at all to 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 fill up i'm on the contrary trying to 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 almost circle around them to, to 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 give them a space, the space that that, that they deserve. So so yeah, I mean, I, I I do write from a certain saudade, from mm. from a constant feeling of 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 absence in presence or presence of absences. Uh, is there something that you're now working on? That you're you're is there a new form in which um, you're trying to to place that saudade? Um, I am writing a novel, a novel, as I was telling you, that I'm, I'm writing in English for now. Is, is, this the, is this the novel that I read about that has to do with Polaroids and a, and a family trip? Yeah, it has to do a bit with that. My kids, well, my, my stepson and my daughter were taking a lot of Polaroid pictures as we drove between New York and Arizona. And I have a bunch of pictures that I'm trying to work with. Uh, I don't think that I'll put them in the book, um, but, I, but they'll be in the book somehow. Uh, their print, their imprints will be there at least. I have a bunch of recordings of my husband telling the two kids stories about Geronimo, the Indian, and Cochise, and Loco, and all the Chiricahua Apaches. Uh, he knows uh, he knows about that a lot. He knows about the strangest things, but uh, he knows a lot about uh, Apache history. Mm. And he told our while we were driving to Arizona, he told our children all these amazing stories and that kind of made them go crazy because they started in the backseat, they started playing uh, that they were uh, Apaches fleeing from, from Americans now mm. <laughs> and from Mexicans. So they have a huge like identity confusion, at least in their games. And, and I started recording well, the, all those processes. I mean, recording in my own writing, but also physically recording their voices and uh, playing with the camera and, so I have a lot of raw material there that I'm slowly putting together. Does it have a, a constraint or a form to it that you're adhering to? No, there is no constraint. I only work with constraints when I think that the constraint will be productive, when, when there's a reason, right? When, um, In the case of the story of my teeth, I... I the procedure may be seen as a constraint, but it was more than more than a self-imposed constraint. It was it was just a mechanism, a survival mechanism almost uh, for the novel. And here, I don't have uh, I don't have any constraint either. I, I mean, I'm exploring different different avenues, different forms, different procedures, different ways of engaging with photography and with with pre-recorded sound. But uh, I, I have no rules in terms of how that's going to be translated into the novel. Right. 
Well, it's a pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Valeria. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. We've been talking today to Valeria Luiselli about her novel from Coffeehouse Press, The Story of My Teeth. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Thank you.